A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Welcome to A Thoughtful Faith Podcast. This is Sarah Colette, and today I'm excited to be joined by um, two really wonderful individuals. Um, Jay Griffith, who is going to be a part of the interviewing process with us today. He's um, helped me set up this interview, and I'm really grateful. And so he's here, and he'll be asking some of the questions. And we are also joined by um, Jim McConkie. And um, we're in his home today, and I want to thank you for letting us come in. Well, it's nice to have you here. <laughs> um, and the way we'll start today is I'll, um, I want Jay to introduce himself a little bit, and, and then um, we'll go ahead and start with the actual podcast. So welcome, everyone. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate the chance to, to be involved in this. I've only been exposed to a thoughtful faith in Mormon stories for about about a month and have thoroughly enjoyed them and and now a contributor and encourage anybody listening to also be a regular contributor. Um, I had the good fortune of living down the street from Jim and he's my my family's home teacher, which is how I got to know him better. I actually knew his uh, daughter-in-law before that for a number of years and very impressed with her also. But um, I grew up in Oregon and served a mission um, in Michigan, and I uh, have three children, um, been active in the church uh, all my life, although I've had some times where I've cried of crisis of faith and questioned the existence of God and what his character is. Um, I'm currently the young men's president in my ward, and which I think is the, the best job in the church. I love I love doing that. And um, that's that's about about me. We'll go on to Jim. All right, that sounds wonderful. Um, we're gonna do this kind of in um, classic Mormon stories fashion, which is to ask that you introduce your yourself, starting from the beginning, your origins, and <laughs> where you come from, and we'll, well go from I, there. I, I started in Salt Lake, and the only thing I disagree with Jay on is the best job in the church is being the gospel doctrine teacher. <laughs> And that's All what right. I'm doing right now. <laughs> that and, can start a whole debate on its own. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a lot of fun to be the gospel doctrine teacher. I grew up for a time in Salt Lake City. My father died when I was seven, so my mother had to kind of put the family back together. And she went back east. And so I that began my sojourn away from Zion. And so I grew up in New York City. I grew up in London, where my mother taught at the University of London. And then I came back and spent the first part of my career in Washington, D.C. And the best thing that happened to me during those years was to meet Judy at BYU, my wife, and have three great kids and 11 grandchildren. And I am a, an attorney. And there are three things that you have to be to be a McConkie. You have to be 
an active good member of the church. <laughs> and uh, you also have to be an attorney, and then you have to be a Democrat. And if you qualify on those three uh, points, then uh, you're a true McConkie. At least the saying goes. Wow. <laughs> Do you have like any rebels that. in the family? <laughs> oh, a couple, but they're they're in the minority and they're unenlightened. And <laughs> so they're not just, blood relations <laughs> either. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but we love them all, of course, okay. and uh, include them in our family. Okay. Well, I want to point out, obviously, you know, right from the beginning, I'm sure no one missed the name McConkie. And um, you've talked a little bit about what it takes to be a McConkie. I, was Bruce R. McConkie a Democrat? Yes. And uh, some of the members of the family claim that he became more conservative over time. I reject that notion <laughs> because I think it's doctrinally inconsistent. Okay. Uh, but uh, yes, I am. He, he was my uh, father's older brother. Okay. And so I knew him and and loved him. He was a, he was a truly a great uh, a great individual, and I, I wish that everyone could get to know him personally. So um, I guess we can just jump right in. And mm -hmm. Jay, if you have any questions, let me know. I'm okay. I'm gonna be really really honest and say mm -hmm. that um, good old Bruce R. McConkie is responsible for my faith crisis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're here. <laughs> um, you know, I actually uh, have come to um, some appreciation for, you know, the extensive amount of work that he did. But also, I think he is a difficult figure for many of our listeners and for just, you know, a lot of the people um, that are kind of starting to really investigate their faith and and church doctrine, and um, he can he can kind of be a difficult character. Why don't you start by telling us what you know of him personally, and how you would describe him on a you know from a personal perspective, how he was in in his relationship with you? Well, I have kind of an interesting perspective on this because I have uh, two apostles that are uncles. One is Elder Worthlin, and the other is Bruce R. McConkie. And so I grew up in two households of faith. And even as a young person, uh, sitting at my grandfather's table, uh, my grandfather was the presiding bishop of the church, Joseph L. Worthland. His son was Joseph B. Worthland, who was the late apostle. And so I really can't remember a time when I wasn't either at my Uncle Bruce's home, playing with cousins, or in my grandfather's home, or over with in Elder Worthland's home playing with cousins. And I realized early on that there were different points of view. And uh, those two families looked at theology differently. And uh, every once in a while, one or the other would remind me that not everyone in the church thought that way. Right. And so when I grew up, I didn't sense that there was a need for me to be orthodox in the sense of pledging my allegiance to one side of the family or to the other side of the family. The uh, other interesting thing about these two families are oh, the McConkies were devout Democrats and the Worthlands were devout Republicans. <laughs> and so I, I got a perspective and I knew that people feel felt strongly about various things, politics and religion, but that that didn't really impact on the quality of person they were. Right. 
how did your mother feel about um oh she loved uh she loved bruce and um, she always told me that uh, she had a tremendous amount of respect for him i mean he really was devoted to a study of the scriptures and uh, people may disagree with some of the conclusions he came to and legitimately so because there are different ways of looking at uh, at the canon of scripture and what it says but he was uh, a great help to our family after my father died he stepped in he was the person that I went to often for father's blessings. He had an interest in me and my sisters and my mother. Uh, he always kept in touch, as did my mother's side of the family. And so if you're looking at both of these men from uh, as people, I think I would characterize them both as entirely honest, uh, straightforward, and uh, willing to tell you what they, what they thought. Did you ever feel as though um, you could disagree? Oh, yeah, I okay. felt I could. And uh, when you disagreed with Uncle Bruce, you had to know, you had to have a scripture to disagree with him. In other <laughs> words, uh, when we went to some of our extended family home meetings, which I love and I have great memories of, if he asked a question of the family, and we used to do this once a month with all the cousins and the aunts and uncles, and we'd all go on because Bruce was a member of the Quorum of the Seventy or an apostle, he would always give the lesson, almost invariably. And if he asked you a question and you wanted to answer it, he expected you to answer it and then tell him where in the canon of Scripture your answer was coming from. And so there was always in the McConkie family this focus on what does the canon of Scripture say. Okay. So how old are, let me get a perspective of your age here. How old were you when he was, became an apostle? Well, that's hard for me to, to say. I'm 67. And so when did he become an apostle? In the early 1980s. And I can't, I'd have to do the math, but. Now his, um, did you ever have any acquaintance with his father-in-law? Yes. In fact, uh, his father-in-law, John Fielding <laughs> Smith, lived in uh, Bruce's home and died in Bruce's home. And so when we went up there, uh, we would see him and uh, would, would chat with him. And Amelia, who is just a marvelous person, uh, very funny and quite the character, was always there. And that was Joseph Fielding Smith's daughter. Okay. So um, I think it's pretty well known that um, Bruce and his father-in-law were very close. And yes. they had a lot of respect and they agreed on a lot of issues that yeah. I think that um, that he kind of adopted a lot of his um, views in the gospel and his approach to gospel doctrine from his father-in-law. Is that true? Do you have any perspective on I, that? I don't think I go quite that far. Okay. I think that he loved and admired Joseph Fielding Smith. I do think they agreed on things, and I I know that my uh, that Joseph Fielding Smith had an influence on on Bruce McConkie's thinking. I know that they talked a lot about these things, but I would say that the person who had the most influence on Bruce McConkie's thinking was his father, Oscar W. McConkie. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, Oscar Oscar McConkie was a transitional figure for us. He lived in in southern Utah, and he decided that he would break the mold. Instead of being a rancher, he married a red and married above himself because the reds were kind of a celebrity family in southern Utah. And 
my grandfather decided to come to Salt Lake City and become a lawyer. And then he had uh, the sons, and uh, five sons and a daughter. And uh, he uh, changed the whole course and destiny of his descendants. And they now number well over a hundred. And his grandchildren, his his sons were lawyers. Uh, the only one that was smart enough not to be was my father. He was a musician. But the one thing that my grandfather did is he taught his children the gospel. And uh, as we came, as we as we went there for dinner, or if he uh, after church, he'd always ask you what you'd learned, and then you would discuss whether or not what you'd learned squared with the scriptures. And so I remember going into my grandfather's home, and he had all of these Book of Mormons. And I said, well, why do you have 30 or so Book of Mormons in your, in your bookcase? And he, and he said, well, because every year I get one that's unmarked and I read for another subject. And so the study of the Scriptures was a very important thing to him, and it carried over to his sons, and I think it's carried over to his granddaughters and his, and his grandsons as well. The other thing that was remarkable about my grandfather McConkie is there are some people who have, I think, a gift for spiritual experience. And he certainly did, and that influenced his son and has influenced his descendants as well. Okay, will you talk a little bit more about he had a gift for spiritual experience? Well, he had dreams that were prophetic. He uh, had visions. He was a great preacher of the gospel. He was the mission president in uh, California for seven years. And so he was very familiar with the things of the Spirit. And it was just expected that those kinds of experiences would continue down through the, through the generations. But I don't think anyone had those gifts to the same degree that my grandfather McConkie did. Can you share a story of a specific... Vision. Well, he uh, he uh, had dreams and visions about uh, doctrine. Sometimes he would uh, see things that others uh, that that other prophets had seen in the scriptures. Uh, he sometimes would have a dream as to something that would come to pass, and it would come to pass. There's a wonderful story in our family about uh, who was going to be the next apostle, and he. He got the word in a, in a dream that uh, that there was going to be a vacancy, and he didn't know who it was. And the next day, he talked to his wife, Vivian, and his wife, Vivian, said she had had the same dream, but the Lord had told her who the replacement was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was it was a shared gift. And I, uh, I, I had polio as a young man, and so I, uh, my, when my dad died, he died of polio, and I came home, and... We all came home from Minnesota where he was a professor of music, and I had to go up to the LDS hospital, and I would come home at night from the LDS hospital. And I was just a little kid, and I'd sit at his feet, and he was a big man. He was 250 pounds. He was a judge at this time. And I would sit at his feet, and he would sit in his chair, and he'd teach me the gospel, and I would ask him questions. And uh, one day I asked him if, if everything that was alive had spirits. And he paused and thought about it for a minute. And then I asked him if insects did and viruses did and germs did. <laughs> and those are the kinds of things that we like to talk about. And those are the kinds of things that my cousins, to this day, when you get together with the McConkies, you're bound to be talking about 
something scriptural or something theological. Let me, um, let me, I grew up in a family where we like to talk a lot about doctrine as well, but I'm going to give you a little bit of pushback here. Okay. Uh, but I think that, um, one of the things that a lot of people experience when they go through some kind of, um, reevaluation of their faith is that they have to really confront this idea that we know all the answers and hearing you talk about, you know, sitting at your grandfather's feet and having him tell you all, you know, these, these profound, um, doctrinal truths mm-hmm. or, it seems like there was a there was a culture of knowing amongst the McConkies. Do you feel that there's maybe some difficulties with that at all, or did you experience any difficulties? Did did people question? Was oh, there? Oh, do you sure. know what I'm saying? Absolutely, because I I've ended up on some doctrines taking a different tack, a different point of view. Let me tell you uh, one of my favorite stories about uh, Uncle Bruce. He was always uh, a defender of the church's position on restricting priesthood uh, to African-Americans. And that was very difficult for me because I was working in the United States Congress. I was the chief of staff for Gun McKay. I was active in the civil rights movement. And if there was anything that I knew that the New Testament taught, it was to love all mankind and to be inclusive. And I didn't see anything in Jesus's teachings. And in fact, that teaching is so fundamental it really caused cognitive dissonance for me. Let me, let, I, I really want you to tell this story, but I want you to give a little bit more background there. How did you come to that conclusion? W- 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 did your mother raise you that way? Was that kind of the culture in your home? Or did you really develop that sense of, um, you know, that all men were created equally on your own? How did you come to that conclusion? Well, it was just obvious. Point? I mean, to me, uh, you, you can't read the New Testament and see the people that Jesus loved associated with and the ultimate direction that the gospel takes when it goes to the Gentiles into the world and read Paul all or uh, read read Paul's uh, there's no difference between male female bond free the same thing that we hear again in the in the in the book of Mormon and Nephi and come away feeling that for some strange reason uh, African Americans can't have equal privilege in the in our faith, and uh, this was a very difficult thing for me personally. But I'll, I, I can talk about that later if you want me to. But this doctrine—I shouldn't call it a doctrine. This policy, because I never believed it was a doctrine, changed, and President Kimball asked Bruce McConkey to write a memo, and he did. And the assignment was to tell us if this is scriptural, this idea that you restrict priesthood. And he came to the conclusion that it was not. Now, that was quite a surprise and probably a shock to most people. This is Bruce R. McConkie. So the, the policy had already been changed? Had not been, had no. not been changed. Yeah, this okay. was when President Kimball was, was asking his brethren to talk to him, write about it, think about it, and he wanted to know what Bruce thought. And he wrote this memo and said, I don't think you can defend this doctrine from the scriptures. And I mean, that's an honest statement. I believe it too. But anyway, uh, after this great day in 1978, we had another family McConkie home evening. Of course, everyone (laughs) wanted to ask Bruce questions about all of these things that he had said in, in family home evenings, in books, in speeches, in debates. 
And he stepped back and he said, now listen, I want the family to understand something. I was wrong on this. Everything I have ever said, everything I have ever written, everything I have ever thought on this subject is wrong. And I repent of it. And this is a new day. And I think that was a reflection of the magnificent spiritual experiences that took place when that revelation came, because it took people who were decidedly on the wrong side of the issue, from my point of view, and switched them around. And I always remembered that. So uh, the one thing that makes faith perhaps a little easier for me is that I've always recognized that just because you're an apostle or prophet, there's no such thing as inerrancy. And so I am not looking for it. And so if a prophet's wrong or, or right, it doesn't cause a crisis. Because obviously Joseph Smith was rebuked of the Lord sometimes. Sometimes he was praised. Sometimes he made mistakes. And that's as true today as it was in his, in his lifetime. Can I? Oh, yes, go ahead. Because I'd like to explore, explore a little more. It, it seems to me that um, how you grew up, having especially apostles with various opinions, was probably valuable compared to the typical culture that LDS people would grow up. But there would still be the, the question, I think, in a lot of people's minds where you had um, an apostle of the Lord who spoke with such authority I mean, I can't think of any other apostle that spoke with the authority that Bruce spoke with before or since. Um, so why didn't you um, follow to that side of, I mean, again, he's such a strong personality. And somehow, what was it in your thinking that that you went the opposite direction? On some things. I mean, on, on many things, I have no... Right, but I'm talking say, about this issue in terms oh, of blacks and priesthood. Well, on this issue, I think it was a particularly important issue for me personally because of my politics and the fact that I was so involved in politics. 1980, I ran for attorney general on the Democratic ticket and lost because that was the time the state was turning decidedly Democratic. But I recognized that there could be two points of view that could be held strongly, and one could be right and the other could be wrong, and they could be held by two different apostles at the very same time. Because do you think that came from your background with having Elder Worthland? Yeah, I think so. I think because I knew that uh, I knew that my grandfather on some things differed uh, when he would say, "Just remember, there are two points of view." Because my last name is McConkey, and some people associated me with that. My and Bruce was more of a theologian, doctrinarian than my than the presiding bishop Worthland that I grew up with for a year or so after my dad died, but. When I got back to Washington, D.C., um, uh, Lester Bush, who wrote that seminal article in Dialogue, was in my ward. And I was thinking about these things. And I was also a close friend of Mike Quinn, and we'd talked about these things. And so I... This is previous. Uh, this to... is previous to the revelation. So I said uh, to, to Lester, I, I want to see all your raw data and all your research. And so he brought it over in a, in a, in a binder. And so I read it, and I read it, and I came to the conclusion in my own mind that this was a misguided mistake, almost a it was a historical accident. Joseph Smith was not the instigator of it. 
And he'd ordained blacks that everybody knows now. And so I actually had an experience where I got an answer to a prayer. And this doesn't happen often in life, uh, where you have some experience that really uh, is profound. And I was so dis disraught and discouraged over it, and I uh, prayed, and the words came into my mind. If you can just be patient, and this was in 1978, <laughs> if you can just be patient, this is going to be all right. And I also felt that the conclusion I had come to was a correct conclusion. Now, I know the church hasn't gone that, that distance yet, and uh, I hope they do. Do you want to state that conclusion? Uh, Oh, that the, 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 we don't know why the, why the African-Americans didn't have the priesthood. Well, the church has stated that on their website. But... They, they don't know. I, I think we probably know. Right. And uh, I came to the conclusion as to why. And what is that conclusion? Well, I think it was a historical accident. I think that there were many reasons we did that. One, I think we were white. There was a feeling of racism. We were kind of tuning into the Civil War. We wanted to uh, show that we work and conservative in the eyes of people. I think these things came out and uh, they, they, you know, they slowly come off of this because it's not as if you can't ordain blacks. What happens is that you can't endow them and then you can't give them a priesthood. And there's a whole history of this, but I just thought it was a misguided thing. We were out in the West. There weren't a lot of them. Uh, and it was unfortunate. So that's what I think happened. I, you know, going back to what you were saying, Jay, Bruce spoke with such a force. I, I was reading through some of his um, devotionals today, and he spoke as though everything he said was as clear and as plain as the nose on his face, that there was no variation, as though the Lord had come down and dictated his talk for him. I mean, he spoke with that. And so, you know, it's interesting because my, my mom uh, attended BYU and went to the devotional where he talked about uh, when he when he addressed George Pace yeah. in that book. And, I, you know, she she had that come from of listening to um, uh, Bruce R. McConkie in, in those kinds of settings. And so uh, I think that there for a lot of members, there was this feeling that you that the you didn't disagree you couldn't disagree that he was the authority and he, he spoke for the Lord and, and you did, there was something inappropriate about that. But yet here within the context of his own family, there's a culture of being able to disagree and, you know, go off, go as far as to say, oh no, that, you know, you're getting that wrong. There's nothing about God in that. I, I just find that remarkable. And so, um, I'm wondering if you can give us any kind of an insight into whether or not there was discussion and pushback and maybe arguing within the family, not, but like, did people within your family, could, could they say you're wrong on that and have that kind of, you know, interaction? Did you have that discussion uh, well, I, with him? Well, I, I, you know, I have, uh, he would tell you if he disagreed with you. I mean, it wasn't as though <laughs> if you said something that was on the other side, you wouldn't get pushback. And there was there was disagreement among my cousins. I uh, one of my favorite cousins, Oscar, and I used to play squash together quite regularly. And we used to 
each would sometimes start the game and say, okay, if I win and I'm right on this doctrine, and if you win, <laughs> then you're right on this doctrine. It was all in good fun. And so we could disagree, and we could, we could tell Uncle Bruce that we disagreed, and we could talk to him about these things. And I never, I mean, he had strong opinions on things, but it wasn't all black and white. And he would be the very first to admit that we don't believe in inerrancy, that prophets and apostles never have made the claim that every time they speak, it's ex cathedra. I mean, this is not something that we ever thought or believed. And so uh, I realized that he had a, an authoritarian air, and that's probably an understatement. <laughs> but just a little bit. The Mormon Doctrine book helps with that too. But you have to remember that he was a lawyer advocate, and and that was his personality. And he was bold, and he had a big voice, and he was big. Uh, but he was also tender, and he, he could talk to you, and he was concerned for you, and uh, was was. I wish people could know him on that basis. But in his public persona from the pulpit, he was a, he was one of those. I think great turn-of-the-century Mormon preachers. Right. So let me ask you a, a small question, but um, it's an interesting one for me. Do you think that um, Bruce R. McConkie knew about Lester Bush's article and that he read it? Did he, did he have any idea? I don't know, because okay. I, never, I, never I never brought that up with him. And I was in Washington, and so my uh, association uh, dropped off. Okay. okay but yeah. Let's explore this a little more. So I'm curious, as passionately as you felt being involved in the civil rights movement and and about that issue, how many times or did you approach this with? Bruce? I mean, did you push him to try to change his opinion? Mm -hmm. I mean, I would have been very tempted to. Yeah. No, I don't think so. I mean, I was gone. Uh, the family home evenings I had attended were just after my mission. And by this time, I was married. I was living in Washington, D.C., and so I didn't have the opportunity. But when Bruce came back and was part of the dedication of the Washington, D.C. temple, I mean, I had an opportunity to see him, but it was more family talk and how are you and how's the family going. It wasn't really an opportunity to, to discuss anything of deep import. Right. Interesting. I, so, um, hmm. I mean, I didn't feel the need. Yeah, so explore I mean, that because I I, uh, I feel a need to talk to some general authorities about some things that, <laughs> that that trouble me a little bit, and I would love somehow oh, I, to get in that in to to sit down and just kindly ask them, you know, why is it this way, and what can we do to address some of these concerns that I have? So that's I guess that's my curiosity. Why I mean, with this accessibility that, and I realize there's a distance, but that. I mean, why do you, why do you think yeah, you didn't push you that? Yeah, picking up the phone and saying, I feel so strong about this. <laughs> yeah, well, you got it wrong. Maybe it's because we were in the same family. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, you got to live together. <laughs> and, and I wasn't going to, con I realized I was not going to convince him because uh, he, I mean, if you can write a memo and say the scriptures uh, don't justify the position, but you take it, you take it that a position like this, he was loyal to the church, and as long as the church had that position, he had it. Oh, that's interesting. We got to explore that. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. He was reflecting the. It hurts me to say this, the official policy of the church, and uh, I think that 
these brethren, I, to this day, I'm just sure that they feel very strongly about being loyal to one another. And they won't uh, change something unless there's unanimity. I mean, Elder Packer's talked on this. It's not a new notion to members of the church unless everyone in the quorum agrees on something. And what that means is they're not going to talk about their disagreements either. So I knew that there were times when things were spoken about and debated, but he was so careful never to share the different sides and positions. But I mean, when I sat in, when I sat at the table with my grandfather, Worthlin, who was the presiding bishop at that time, I mean, he'd come home sometimes and talk about the different points of view. Uh, on, for instance, John D. Lee. I remember as a young boy listening to him tell me about John D. Lee and how there was a difference of opinion that had developed in the, among the brethren. And so I recognized that there was a process for changing these things. I also recognized that there were different points of view that were being expressed and that when there was unanimity, they would then say something. And sometimes I think when the church doesn't say anything, because they can't. I mean, they are not in agreement as to what's how how they should proceed. And I take great comfort in this because that means that a single individual who has a great idea can't co-opt the kingdom of God. I mean, it's a, it's the kind of thing where you have to respect everyone's point of view and then everyone gets the same revelation and there's real safety in that kind of church governance. And so from my point of view, it's kind of the constitution of the church and it operates well and it keeps us out of trouble We've never turned into a fanatical religion. Can I explore that? Just it keeps us out of trouble. So it seems it, it troubles me that we were kind of late coming to the civil rights, and I'm sure it troubles you. Yeah. So um, that doesn't seem like it's keeping us out of trouble. I, I wonder, you know, in the early days of the church, there was more debate, you know, over things like evolution with B. H. Roberts and Talmadge and and the prophet at the time. Um, I just wonder if the membership of the church, would you, do you feel like it would, would be unhealthy if they understood a little bit more about the debate that goes on? And Because I think a lot of members don't realize that, that that's really going on um, behind the scenes, and, and they don't appreciate that there's... I think, I think the process to know it and understand it is, is valuable. And and to keep us from that, I don't know if I don't know if that's as healthy as it could be. I don't, I don't think anybody's keeping anyone from it. I just think it's the way the the government was set up. That in order for a, a group to make decisions, uh, and they have to respect each other's opinions and hold them inviolate. I agree with that, but and why so, can't we know a little bit more about well, if, if, what's if, going on behind the scenes? Well, I, I think I think they have a very strict rule that. Their their comments are protected, and their points of view are protected, because they're afraid of damaging people's faith. If well, no, I don't think it's a matter of damaging people's faith, because I think it's given. I mean, I I think it's a given that church leaders disagree. I think it damages their relationships and their capacity to get revelation, because in order for a quorum to get a revelation. Uh, you can't have one person going to a wife or a member of the family and saying, my gosh, did you hear what Apostle so-and-so said in our meeting today? Boy, have we got a lot of hard work. I mean, if you yeah. if that happens, then the love 
that you have to have among men, because the Doctrine and Covenants in the 107 section tells us that these, ha these decisions have to be made in lowliness of heart, in love and respect for each other. And in order for those, those tender feelings to exist, so that the Spirit of the Lord isn't restrained, they, are, they hold each other's confidences inviolate. And I, I'd like that because it's okay for members of the church to have different opinions. I mean, no one's saying that, but I think it's important in terms of the revelatory process to protect the decision-making uh, mechanism. I think that's what's happening. That's an interesting point of view. I um, I wanted to add a little bit, um, and Jay, you touched on this a little bit, but there there has been a cultural shift in that way because it didn't used to be that. I mean, the, they used to disagree openly. I mean, you know, the B.H. Roberts and Talmadge was one of them and uh, one, a great example. And also, yeah, I mean, it wasn't uncommon for the brethren to voice differing opinions publicly, to debate publicly. And then there was a shift and it was, it, there was kind of, um, a correlation and a, and well, you know, correlation happened and, and a coalescing, I think, of, um, of what came out of that group of men. I don't know. I, I, I'm sitting here asking the question of what actually inspired that shift well, I in think, culture. I think it's when the church got bigger. I think, uh, you know, you're looking, uh, organizations mature just like people mature. And, and in the early days when no one cared two hoots about Mormons, and we were just being tossed around and end up in the Great Basin. These were family squabbles. Orson Pratt could get up and say one thing and then bring me on compound on him and say, I disagree with everything you're saying, uh, which is, you know, proof certain that church leaders don't agree on everything. But I think as the church got bigger and it needed to get one message out, and it gave people outside the church an opportunity to cause trouble and division that they developed a greater sense of confidentiality. And I think that I think that's basically uh, what's happened over the years. I mean, that's one of the reasons that we have a, um, um, a, a less um, challenging uh, curriculum in Sunday school than we did at the turn of the century. When we have the B.H. Uh, Roberts is writing the 70s manuals, or John Witzow is writing rational theology, or Barker is writing about the apostasy, Neoplatonism, Augustine as a course of study on the apostasy for the church on the Wasatch Front. I mean, I personally would love to return to those days. I hope we can, because I think you can have a dual curriculum, especially in a computer age when you don't have to worry about printing books. But for the moment, at least, it's all been simplified. Now, there's real danger in that, because simplification means you don't understand. You and dumb it down a little bit. You dumb it down. Yeah. And, and you don't and, tell the whole story. And then if the whole story isn't told, then you, you it's hard to come to the right conclusion without all of the information. And so if you're just dealing with the surface, uh, that's the problem. And people do that, and then they fall out of the church uh, more easily, I think. I have a question for you from your, your personal opinion on this, but you were talking about how Lester Bush had written that article and you had, 
been able to go through the material. And I think that that is a wonderful example of how a member of the church um, saw an injustice within the the doctrine of the church and the policy of the church and really went to this, you know, extensive effort to fight that. And, and he was not kindly treated by a lot of people because he was outspoken. Oh, Lester. Yes. In his opposition to the church. But I, I feel as though, you know, that he, he did us a great service by standing up and, and speaking his mind. But I think that a lot of times, um, that's not okay with members. We, 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 we've established a culture where it's, it's don't go against the church. Don't be active, wait for the brethren to come to their own conclusions. And I want to ask you, what do you think about that? How appropriate is it for us to push back or to raise our voice or to, um, to be vocal or to, to protest to some degree. What do you think? Okay. Well, I, first of all, I, 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 Lester Bush is a hero of mine. Uh, I, I don't have any concerns about the appropriateness of what he wrote. Uh, and I think there is a real difference between writing an article and stating the facts and talking about how the policy on blacks and the priesthood develops over time. I think there's a real difference between that and challenging the brethren. I mean, you can have this discussion over here, but when you direct your discussion to a leader in the church and say, well, you're wrong and you shouldn't be a leader over this, you've crossed the line, which causes stress and strain on the Mormon family. And so I think if you're dealing with the facts and you're doing it in a fair way, that it's entirely appropriate. Now, I know some members of the church may not take that position, but I get the sense, at least over my lifetime, as we mature, come out of our teenage years, move into adulthood, that that's changing. I mean, there's far less uh, concern about good scholarship. And we have the Joseph Smith papers, we have Leonard Arrington, we have uh, Richard Bushman, Dean May, they made a tremendous contribution. The facts are now out. I teach CES, and it's wonderful these facts are out because it's it's now legitimate for me to talk about them in class. And so I think we're moving in the right direction. So um, I I just wanted to to ask one more follow up question. Um, do you feel as though um, like political activism and things like that is also appropriate. Like, um, one of the current issues today is same sex marriage and there's all sorts of conflict. Is it appropriate to take a stand like that? Even if you know that the church has gone against it just from your personal opinion, what's your personal opinion on that? Such a tough, tough question because you, you know, the church feels like a family and you may disagree with them. So you have this feeling that, you don't want to embarrass the family and kind of step out of line, even though within the family you can express your dissent. And I know how raw this issue is uh, on on marriage, uh, same-sex marriage. And I think that just becomes a highly personal decision. And I, my sense is that we didn't have a very good experience on Proposition 8. And so I would hope that we don't 
position ourselves on a political issue like that again. But those are very hard personal questions because you've got your own personal integrity at stake. And I guess that the most important thing is your own personal integrity. So if the Latter-day Saint said to me, I, I'm going to publicly oppose, I may think, gosh, that's too bad. It, it hurts everybody's feelings. But if you really feel that way and your integrity requires it, I would hope you wouldn't tack the brethren on it, but certainly state your point of view. Because I know on this issue, as I talk to the young people in church, that uh, their way of looking at this is a lot different than mine was. I mean, I've come, I've come a distance on a number of issues. One is, is how to use patriarchal authority in the home since I have a wife with a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> and so I've grown into a whole new understanding of male-female relationships. Thank goodness. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful because I think it's more consistent with what the Lord wants. But uh, the same thing is happening in other areas, and we just have to... Everything comes line upon line, precept upon precept, and we have to be sometimes more patient than I want to be. So, Jim, I, you know, you um, touched on your um, relationship, and you've talked to me a little bit about that as a home teacher with Michael Quinn, and, and I would love you to explore that a little bit because that was kind of the cusp, um, it seems to me, and I'm not, you know, completely literate in church history, but where there was an individual who had done a lot of great research and factual research. Yeah. Um, and I, from my memory serves me, you know, there's a bit of pushback. And then of course he um, had same sex attraction issue. And, and um, I just like you to talk about that part because he came to your home a lot you, and he's still a personal friend of yours. Oh, yeah. and, uh, he's one of my dearest friends. I, I just love Mike Quinn. We were at BYU together. Um, and he, is responsible for much of my love of Mormon history. When I was at BYU, he was on the same floor. And we used, with Richard Lambert, used to go down to the special collections with Mike Quinn, and he would pull out all the diaries and show us the interesting parts. And that's when you could get the minutes of the first presidency meetings because they hadn't, they didn't, they weren't closing these things down trying to decide how to deal with these things. And it developed in me just a, a just a thirst for information on Mormon history. And uh, unfortunately, Mike is gay. I mean, it's well known. And from from his I say unfortunately because that put him in a position contrary to the church. And he also decided that he would not just make his point of view known, but that he would speak critically of the brethren as he made it known. And he was professor at BYU at this time. And that was not a wise thing to do. And his close friends talked to him, and we, we pled with him not to do that because we could see where that was going to, to lead. But that was his decision, and it didn't change our feelings of loyalty and love for him. I know how hard it was for him to deal with his own gender issues because they were, that was discussed among close friends. And he finds himself now out of the church. Uh, and, and that's a real sadness to me because if to this day, if I have a friend who's having a problem with the church history issue and they think that you find a 
You find somebody who does something wrong in church history, therefore the church is true. It is untrue, I mean. Uh, when I when I talk to people who have these issues, I love to get them in touch with Mike. Because if you ask Mike, did the Father and the Son appear to the Prophet Joseph Smith? He says yes. And he still has a testimony. And he he will tell anyone that he's never seen anything that he's read that has dissuaded him that those fundamental spiritual happenings which established the founding events for the gospel and Mormonism, the Restoration. He doesn't doubt those. Does he disagree with things? Sure. But when you get problems with gender and then a willingness to speak critically against specific brethren, it was a perfect storm for leaving the church. And uh, I just, whenever I see him, I'm a close enough friend, I can say, Come on, Mike, you've been out long enough. Come on back. <laughs> you don't need to stay out there any longer. Because many of his closest friends uh, are, you know, in-state presidencies, bishops, and they're the people that love him just as much as anyone else. And so I'm always hopeful that we can, that he'll say, okay, I've been out long enough. I'm ready. So I wonder if... Um... I wonder if the church is, or the the group of brethren. I guess I'm I'm directing this question to you just again for your personal opinion. But they're open to a lot more criticism now, and it's a lot easier to be criticized in this day of information because you know, it. I mean, you click, and there there's there your criticism yeah. for Aldrich, <laughs> <laughs> right. and um, and and a, you know, it's getting harder and harder to control what the members say about you, and, and not that they, I think, you know, had a distinct conscious effort to control what people said, but I think it was definitely, and it still is very taboo. But do you think that they're going to have to loosen up a little bit more and grow very? thick skins and and adjust to the fact that people are much more capable and willing to voice Oh, yeah, I do. Opinions. I mean, first of all, there, there are a couple of things at play. One is the availability of information. And two, the defending of the kingdom of God's changed over the years. It used to be that you had these advocates like Harley P. Pratt and John Witzel and James Talmadge and B.H. Roberts, and they were the defenders of the faith. But today, defending the faith is a far more technical and arduous task because the people that are defending the faith now are professors at universities, lawyers in the courtroom, and we're defending the faith on grounds that lay people, a lay ministry or some lawyer who's happened to be a church leader, has no hope of uh, being able to master the material necessary to defend the church in various areas, historically even sometimes on a doctrinal issue. And so as the church gets bigger and information is available, that means that some of the defending of the church now is shifting to the experts. And that's a good thing. And so that's one thing that's happening. And that's a, that's a good thing. Because the experts are willing, they know what the facts are. They're not trying to shy away from them. They're not surprised by them. And so we can make a much better defense when we have all the facts. I'm talking like a lawyer now. <laughs> but um, the other thing that's happening is the church is getting bigger. And when any organization gets bigger, then there there's going to be a lot more shifting and a lot more can be said. And 
it's not as meaningful in, the, uh, in terms of offending people because it's such a large family. And I think there's a stage that the church has kind of come through, and I, I kind of refer to it as the teenage years, where you're still small enough that everything you say, uh, you, ha you, you know the person who said it. And as we get larger, uh, it's just easier to disagree. It's easier to have someone say, yeah, I'm not so sure about that, because it's not personal, because you really don't know that person. And as long as it's the kind of criticism that isn't aimed directly at the leadership, then I, I don't think it's going to cause much of a problem. I mean, it, it, I don't even think it caused much of a problem in the past, although there are some exceptions to that, obviously. I wanted to go back a little bit and, and talk about you personally and your own, um, I guess, journey in your faith, your um, some of the struggles that you faced in terms of your own questions. And, um, and I, I guess a good place to start is when was the very first time that you encountered a problem um, that maybe you didn't have the answer to or... Well, the the first time, the, the, uh, as I mentioned before, the issue of blacks in the priesthood was a problem. And then there were also other things historically. When I first found out that the Word of Wisdom really wasn't in place until the early 1900s, and the early brethren were drinking wine, and, you know, these things at first were a concern to me. But, as I said, having friends like Mike Quinn, and, and I also had a very close friend by the name of Dean May, who was a wonderful Mormon historian, uh, those things were never the kinds of things that you'd go out of the church on. But the but my, my faith journey, uh, the, the biggest problem for my faith journey is that I'm a McConkie. And I didn't want to be in the church or believe it unless I knew it. I didn't want to just be in the position where because I was a McConkie and they're so persuasive <laughs> and that, that I just follow along. I wanted my faith to be independent of the McConkies and the Worthlands because I had a lot of pressure to fit a certain mold and I didn't want to go to church. I know what to say in church because it's kind of like you're, you're in a play. And you know what the expectation is. And you know what you're supposed to say. And you know how you're supposed to bear your testimony. And everybody can do it. And sometimes I think people do it because it's the social thing to do. Not because it's a heartfelt expression of belief. It's really just a way of saying, I like being a Mormon and I'm with you. But it doesn't. Re it's not really a reflection of what you know spiritually or don't know. And so that got me started on writing a, a book. Can I ask about what age you're talking about? Uh, well, this started on my mission. And it wasn't that I didn't believe I did. And I was happy to go and I was excited. But as I, as I got through the mission and out, I realized that I had to have something more than just two great families. And there's this wonderful expression of John's that, uh, that he said to the uh, to the scribes and the Pharisees when they were debating about about who were the children of Abraham, and I kind of felt like in the church I was part of the children of Abraham because I just happened to belong to these strong Mormon families. But I also realized that the, 
that John said, you can, Jesus said, you can take these stones and make them into children of Abraham. So don't think that your spiritual um, well-being is based upon a pedigree. And I realized that that's how Jesus felt about it. So I had some work to do. And so I went through a process where I decided I would just deconstruct my faith. Or I thought about, there isn't a God, there is a God. Uh, Joseph Smith is a prophet, he isn't a prophet, or what kind of a prophet is he? And it got me deeply into church history. And so uh, out of that process, I ended up, we taught our children once a week because we were concerned that our, I was concerned that my children might go out of the church on some historical fluke. And so Judy and I taught our kids uh, once a week, one-on-one. And and so I was teaching them about church history. And it finally ended up being a 730-page book, which was recently published on the Doctrine and Covenants. And what's the name of the book? It's called Looking at the Doctrine and Covenants again for the very first time. And what I tried to do is go back and look at how the members of the church at the time the Revelation came would have understood it. Because we have such a tendency to read back our own culture into these revelations that what we think it says isn't even close to the mark sometimes. And so I did that, and I went through, and I carefully considered every single issue. And the reason I wrote about the Doctrine and Covenants is that is church history. And almost every single question that you could possibly ask that's sensitive comes up in the context of the Doctrine and Covenants. And so I had to solve those problems, and it happened over a 10-year period of time. It took quite a bit of time to do this. And it ended up being a book for the family, and then someone saw it and said, well, gee, maybe this should be sold, and so it is being sold now. Uh, so that's that's where I ended up. And I came to the conclusion that Joseph Smith was a prophet. I came to the conclusion that prophets aren't always right, that prophets have prejudices, but that marvelous things can come through inspired men who are in tune with God. And that's where I ended up on on that issue and how I maintain my own faith independent of my family. Um, I want to ask a question. You know, Joseph Smith is a prophet and prophets aren't always right. Are, and maybe you don't want to say this on record, but are there parts of the doctrine and covenants that you think might not be revelation? Oh, uh, yeah, there's one that's obvious. And this was probably the hardest section for me to write because this really caused me to do some thinking. If you take a look at section 111, it talks about uh, going to Salem and finding two things, converts and money and treasure. And right up there, the church is very honest and open about this, right up there in the heading, it says they never found any money. But right down there in the Revelation, it says, and you go to Salem and find money. And so I thought to myself, this is really quite remarkable. First of all, that is there, because that never happened. They never got, but to this day, we haven't seen money from Salem to save the church. And so I had to, to think this through, and I thought, well, maybe one of the reasons it's here is that the Lord wants us to come to grips with the issue of false prophecy. Because it's in the canon. And so if you're a careful student of the Scriptures, you're going to read section 111, and you're going to you're going to see that it says you're going to find a lot of money. And it says in the heading, they never found any money. 
And so that, to me, is an example of Joseph Smith's uh, desires getting mixed up in a prophetic utterance. And that's the lesson to be learned from it. And uh, I think it's a fair interpretation, section uh, 111. And so that's a place in our canon where you come to grips with this, with this issue. Now, having said that, I think he has a marvelous batting average. <laughs> and when you take him as, as a whole, you don't find many problems like that. And also having said that, I think there are different levels of revelation. I think it's different when a resurrected being named John the Baptist appears to Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith, and he places hands on their heads, and you feel the weight of those hands in broad daylight when you're fully cognizant and you have a conversation with a resurrected being. I mean, the chance to be, be, to be wrong in that situation is a lot different than an inspired letter or what Joseph Smith believes is an expired utterance that gets into section 111. So you have to look at this in a discriminating way. And just because you find in an inspired utterance that may be wrong, it doesn't go to the issue of, was there a resurrected being who appeared to Joseph Smith on the shores of the Susquehanna River? So you have those are the kinds of things I had to deal with as I went through. And the hardest issues weren't coming from the outside. It wasn't the anti-Mormons, you know, Sandra Tanner, although I read everything that she ever wrote when I was a very young man. Uh, all of those issues are presented to us in the canon of Scripture. And I always thought that the Doctrine and Covenants, if it was read very carefully, was a graduate course on how God deals with people. And it's not satisfying always. It's not satisfying to think that there are mistakes. I mean, it's much, it'd be much nicer if we didn't have to have these problems. But that's not what the Doctrine and Covenants teaches. So that brings up two questions. The first one is, when you're addressing this issue with your children, how open are you? I mean, you have to, you know, you get into the problems with polygamy. And I mean, you can really dive into some of these issues. So how open are you with your children when you talk to them? And then the next thing is, um, are you willing to accept that when people, you know, the dominoes, could fall and they could all fall for people. And, and, you know, how do we, how do we deal with that? I'm not critical of people who come to a different conclusion than I do on these things, because I think you can, I think you can do it honestly. But in our home, um, with Mike Quinn in and out of the house and, uh, Dean May and others, but when they were 12, 13, 14, they, they had heard about polyandry, polygamy, uh, blacks in the priesthood, women's issues. And this was just part of the atmosphere of our home. Their their mother is a drunk on women's rights. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and every bit equal to anyone in the family intellectually, more so. And so that was their, their uh, milieu. And so when they left and heard these things, they had already heard it discussed in a household of faith. And my, my son James, the year before he left, uh, 
we had this study program where we studied with them one-on-one -on -one so that we could talk about these things in depth, because you never get this in Sunday school. And so we talk about the Doctrine and Covenant study at the Book of Mormon New Testament. And the last year he said to me, Dad, what I really want to do, because he was a debate major and perhaps the most intellectual of our children, he said, I want to study anti-Mormon literature. I said, great idea. And so we collected all of the best and most convincing anti-Mormon literature that I could find. We kept the temple off limits for obvious reasons, because he wasn't endowed. And we studied it together. Now, since that time, he has been very faithful, and I'm grateful. You know, you're right, can go any way. Some of his friends haven't been able to maintain a steadiness in the kingdom. But uh, I always felt, he always felt like his, when his friends found out about these things, that they'd never heard of it before. And they'd come to James and they'd say, have you heard about this? And, and James just yawned. Oh, oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure, Joseph Smith was a polygamist. Of course he was. Whoever said he wasn't. And so when it was just part of the culture, his own culture, uh, he was he was comfortable with it. And I think all my children are, and I'm grateful for that, because those issues have become more important in the minds of people, I think, in the last 10 years than they were when we were raising our kids in the 60s and 70s. Right. Can I expand on that? I, I'm glad that Sarah asked that question. I mean, you've shared that with me before in, in my home. And, and as I reflect on... I mean, I knew some things about church history, um, but I was probably more like, that's why I have some sympathy for the general authorities. I was probably a little overprotective and afraid to discuss some of these difficult things with my children. And so, I, of course, my two oldest boys, they're, they're atheists now, um, hopefully temporary, but that's what they are now. <laughs> and... I, I think that approach that you took was much healthier. And, and as a young men's president, and I broached this with our bishop, and, and he's very open to it, trying to inoculate our my young men so that they have that same experience. And I mean, even a few years ago when I was um, not president, but any young men's presidency, I, I would just mention when we were talking about the first vision that there's you know a number of versions of that as Joseph Smith tried to process that experience. I mean, none of them batted an eye. But, you know, people that are older that haven't ever heard that, it's always a shock to them. And, and you know, my boys feel like they were lied to. Um, and, I, you know, I don't think that's probably the accurate. You know, I would, I'm hoping that the church, you know, that they have the new curriculum, which is much, much better than what they had for the youth. But I'm also hoping that will keep getting pushed in a way that, particularly as we're going to send them out on missions at an earlier age, that they're, they're prepared and they've maybe thought about these things and been taught them from a, a younger age. Do you, do you see that that was, is a possibility? Do you think that's healthy or good? Or do well, you think I, th I think the church is going to begin to put these things in the curriculum? I mean, when they teach about how the Book of Mormon is translated, we're not going to have Joseph Smith looking at plates, pointing at the letters, and they're going to realize that the plates were on a table with a cloth over it and that Joseph Smith needed a hat to keep light out so that he could see what was reflected on the Urim and Thummim. And the Urim and Thummim was often... Or the seer stone, the seer stone probably. I'm going to say it was more likely. Uh, yeah. After the 116 pages were lost, probably the, the seer stone. So... I think those things are going to happen thanks to people like Richard Bushman and others because this information is in the general domain. It's gone beyond Mormonism. And so we'll deal with it 
and it needs to be dealt with, and it needs to be made part of the part of the curriculum. But I think in the past, it's not that the church has intentionally wanted to lie. I mean, when a state president right. or a general authority, what you have to realize is they don't know. And so if you ask somebody, was Joseph Smith a polygamist, and they don't know that he was, and they tell somebody he isn't, and it's as much a surprise to them <laughs> as it is to the person who's trying to figure it out, that's a problem, and it's just a problem of general education. Now, there are some people that need to know all about these things to have faith. I'm one of them. And there are others that don't. But the good thing about this modern age is I think that this is going to become more and more part of the normal conversation. And so hopefully fewer people will be shocked or felt like the church hasn't been up front. But I know this. I know that, that the church is trying to do a better job educating its leaders and its general authorities so that when they are asked these questions, they don't sincerely think they're telling the truth and, in fact, end up rep misrepresenting something. How do you know? I, I can speak to that. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I, her personal friend for many years, um, she's been, I think, at least 16 years the um, assistant to Richard Turley. And she's told us that, I mean, Richard Turley and she, who's, what, the assistant historian of the church, I believe. Um, so she helps him prepare um, all the information for these thorny issues, and I can't remember if it's once a week or once a month, they present this to general authorities. Not just polygamy, but polyandry, all those things. And she's talked about how difficult it is at times to try to gather the information and present it in, a, in the amount of time they have in a way that, that the general authorities can accept and understand, and, and often they're shocked. This is, this is like one of those debates that has raged in my family for years. Do they know or do they not know? If you're a stake president, if you're a general authority, how much time do you have to study the gospel? They probably have less time to study the gospel than I do. And what if they're not inclined to church history? And so it, being a church leader is a tough proposition because it takes so, the, the time when I studied the gospel the least was when I was a bishop. And it's a, I'm, I'm glad I'm not because now I have the time to explore these kinds of issues that, and, uh, that, I, that I want to explore. And so there's that factor. But the reason I, I know this is I remember in one of our, this goes way back, they were becoming concerned about it, but on different issues. They weren't so concerned about some of the historical issues, but Adam God was a big thing when I was a young man. And I remember Bruce McConkie coming to a family home evening. He said, look what I've got. And everybody said, oh, what is that? And it was a three-ring binder. And somebody had gone through and had put all of these anti-Mormon quote things in and the, some church member, or I guess some church historian or someone who had knowledge, had put together this three-ring binder for the brethren so that they could come up on the issues. And I, I think that's doing, in a, apparently, Jay, that's being done in a much more sophisticated way today. And that's great. And that's what, that's what we need to do. That's interesting. Yeah, because you can, I, I can understand what um, Jim is saying. I mean, a lot of these authorities have been very busy in their lives, and they're called 
by God for for lots of reasons, but often it's not be usually it's not because they're scholars of church history. It's because they have other assets that the church needs at the time. So I can understand why they're. I mean, we can understand this on our own level. Uh, when we sit in a Sunday school class and the gospel doctrine teacher has a testimony because they have spiritual experience, they're doing the best they can, and they don't happen to be a Mike Quinn. Obviously, there's a, there are certain limits, and their representations are sincere. But they're wrong, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Let me ask a question about patriarchy for a second. I think it, it lends itself to what we're talking about because um, it is our job to be obedient to the brethren of the church. It is our job, and, and they are called to lead us. And as faithful Latter-day Saints, that's what we do is we, we are obedient and submissive and we follow. And um, it's interesting to talk about it in such a way where you realize how it, sometimes it is blind leading the blind. And, um, and we have this culture that somehow kind of supports that blind leading the blind because we assume we a little bit deify our leaders. We tend to, we, we, we put them up on a pedestal. We assume that they are, um, we taught, we, we all know that they have faults, but we don't know what those are. (laughs) You, you can say that someone has a fault, but you're not allowed to say what that is. Yeah. Unlike Joseph Smith at the time, everybody saw his faults, you know, and even Brigham Young. So, I mean, we're, it's because like you said, the church is so large. Right. We don't, we're more distant. Right. And we don't, we don't, we, so we have this, I think, um, bad habit of deifying our leaders. And I think we do them as a service because imagine, I, I think I have an ego and, you know, a little bit of stroking and I can get too big for my britches. Imagine the weight of walking into a room filled with thousands of people and they all stand, you know, that, 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 that's going to take quite a lot of energy to keep your ego in check. Right. And then on top of that, you walk into a room and give some talk or discussion and all of a sudden everybody believes everything you've said. I think we do them a disservice sometimes in, 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 continually perpetuating that culture. But I want you to talk about that a little bit in terms of, um, you know, patriarchy and the fact that they don't know all the answers, sometimes not even their own history, but we give them quite a bit of power. Well, you know, President Hinckley said adulation is poison. And I think he, he was one of the brethren who really understood why uh, adulation is dangerous. It's dangerous to corporate leaders. It's dangerous to presidents. It's dangerous to church leaders. And as to fathers, as, and, yeah, and, and as <laughs> Jesus said, we should only call one person teacher, and that is Jesus and our Father in heaven. Everyone else is a student, and that's the perspective. But we lose that perspective. One of the reasons we lose it is that we're more distant from our leaders. I think that's one of the key factors. And I do agree with you. It would be, I've often thought about this, it would be a horrible thing to walk into a room and have people believe that you're perfect. Because you couldn't be yourself, and you would feel so constrained that you would probably end up saying and doing less. 
Because if every time a general authority comes into a ward and he gives a healing blessing, because he's a general authority, you anticipate that the person's going to be healed. I mean, what kind of a burden is that to place upon a poor mortal? Or even the Prophet Joseph had the experience of trying to heal and not being successful. Although, on the other hand, he had marvelous healing experiences. Uh, what would be worse than... Uh, being a, uh, say, knowing that you had to be a special witness and really not be. Come the fount of every blessing to my heart to sing the grace. Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafraser.com. See you, see you for